History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the umbrella to my coconut drink. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Yes, I am a cool cocktail. You are a cool cocktail, my friend. <laughs> you are a sex on the beach, if ever there was one. Yeah. Now, last week the Dursleter gave us for episode 67, Religion in the Maldives during the High Middle Ages. And that is 1000 to 1250 CE. Ryan, what have you got for us? I've been intrigued and fascinated all week and very much looking forward to this. So I haven't even done an intro. I just want to know what's happening in the Maldives in religion in the high Middle Ages. Yeah, if you'll remember, when the Dursleter gave me that, I was fairly nervous. You were. I was. But uh, I tell you what, Pete, in this episode, we're going to be venturing into the mysterious world of religion. We're going to be unraveling secrets and uncovering hidden histories. We're going to be exploring the practices and beliefs of the Maldivians' civilization and shedding light on the mysteries of a lost and ancient religion. We'll take a journey through time and follow in the footsteps of some famous explorers, each of which played a key role in uncovering the secrets of the Maldives' past. So join me as we dive into the mystical world of religion and uncover the secrets that lay beneath the surface. Welcome to a land of white sands and crystal blue waters. Welcome to the island kingdom, the last paradise on earth. Welcome to the Maldives. So look, should we get started and let me orient you, Pete? Yes, where am I? Okay, well, officially called the Republic of the Maldives, but known locally as Diva Reheja, this is a small island nation located in the Indian Ocean. Looking at a map, if you find India and head to yep. the southernmost tip, the bit at the bottom, pointy, and then jump into the water and head southwest, you're going to find 1,200 islands clustered together in an archipelago. And this is the Maldives. Ooh, I like an archipelago. <laughs> yeah, I love an archipelago too. <laughs> I like that word in Scrabble. <laughs> Considered one of the most dispersed countries in the world, 99% of the country consists of water spread over an area roughly 90,000 square kilometres. That's about six times smaller than a France. Wow. So it's just That's... water, basically. 99%. <laughs> that is a wet country. <laughs> yeah, it is. But if you count just that 1% of land space, then the Maldives covers a total of 298 square kilometers, which is about 1,851 times smaller than France. Wow. It's a teeny tiny place. It is teeny tiny, usably teeny tiny, but if you want water, boy oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, of the 1,200 islands, only 198 of them are inhabited, and the capital of which is Male. 
In total, the Maldives has a population of about 550,000 people. It's known for its beautiful beaches, its clear blue waters, and its marine life. The Maldives are perhaps best known as a popular destination for tourists. They have about 1.7 million people visit a year. That's more than they've got people people, substantially. <laughs> and 1.7 million of those are not me or you. No, they, no, <laughs> not likely to be any time soon either, let's be honest. But it looks beautiful in the pictures. <laughs> yeah, it sure does, yeah. The Maldives has an average ground level of 1.5 metres above sea level. That's 4.9 feet. Not a big climbing culture then. <laughs> no, in fact, the Maldives is the flattest and lowest lying country in the world. Oh, good for cyclists. That's, that's true, yeah. Uh, the language is Devi, uh, the religion is Islam, and the national animal is the white-breasted water hen. Ah, one of my favourite hens. Yeah, which is a bit odd. I don't know why it's a white-breasted water hen, because it has a grey body with a white face. Ah, that's the white-faced hen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, water hen, yeah. Uh, the flag, it's red with a green rectangle in the middle, which then contains a vertical white crescent moon. Ooh, that sounds yeah. simple and easy to draw. It's a good job they didn't have like one flag for each of the 1200 islands. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a quilt blanket. Mirrors opposite each other, like just <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> Infinity flags. <laughs> anyway, uh, the national anthem is called Gourmet Salam. It was adopted in 1972 and it praises the country's unity, the victory of historic battles, and as an homage to those who fell fighting for it. And it sounds a little something. Like this. Okay, that's a nice upbeat start. It's jolly, isn't it? Yep, it's definitely national anthemy. Yep, I can see myself marching along the beach. Of course, it would have to be the beach in the Maldives. Oh, that was good. Yep, swinging my baton. Gonna have a nice beer after this, looking out at the sea. I'm not feeling the verve that I have with some of them. It's got some pace to it. Yep, rising to a crescendo. Yeah, it's alright. So, not a fan of that one. Well... That was fine. It was very standard national anthem. It didn't, didn't rouse me like some of them have, I must say. Mm. And I kind of imagined something a bit more relaxing, like a... Ukulele. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Blinky, 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 Maldives! Of course. The Maldives has the highest divorce rate in the world. Wow. Yeah. Official records show that the average woman has been divorced three times before she reaches 30 years old. <laughs> three times? Before that 30 is, years old. That is going some. Is there a reason for this that we know or is it just how it goes down there? This island life. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, three times by the time you're 30. Right, so the Maldives has a unique system 
of underwater post boxes. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so if you go diving, you yeah. can post a letter through a post box, which is in the water. Right. Right, they're basically, they're located at various diving sites around the Maldives, and they're managed by the Maldives Post. And you get like a, a waterproof card, obviously, which you can write on using a special pen, and they have a special stamp, and yeah, away it goes and gets, gets sent off. I'm not clear on the value of this <laughs> is this something that struck a lot of people whilst diving is wish you were here having a lovely time underwater well, i can tell you that it's taken off it's very popular they've started doing it in vanuatu now as well so they'll be doing it off the coast of england before you know it i don't doubt they'll be in cornwall before <laughs> before the year is out but i'm still struggling to quite get my head around it why well, why <laughs> It's the thing. Think it's, I think it's just novelty factor. So the postman goes down, yeah, swims down and picks up the post, and then swims down to. Well, does I, it deliver? Swims, I think he's already there because he's working in the post box. It's an underwater post office. Yeah, it's an underwater <laughs> post office. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he sits oh there with a little goodness. in a little booth. Is that right? Yeah, it's pictures of it. Counter number four, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I better hurry. I'm running out of oxygen here. <laughs> yeah, the water doesn't help when you're trying to weigh something on scales, though. So. <laughs> it just bobs off. <laughs> you can get away with a lot more. <laughs> right, final Maldives fact. Every year, the average Maldivian eats 163 kilograms, that's 359 pounds of tuna. They like tuna. That's the weight of basketball star Shaquille O'Neal. That's like just the whole tuna, isn't it? They have a tuna at the beginning of the year and go, this is my tuna. Yeah, that's funny because I was looking for things to measure that weight against. And you're right, just a tuna. Would <laughs> that's the weight of a tuna. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it makes the Maldives the largest consumer of tuna per capita. Chicken of the sea, they say. Did they? I don't know. <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Guess what? What? Guess. Uh, you're an idiot. Yeah. But also, I've booked us a holiday in the Maldives. Oh, you have? Wow. Yeah, and I got a super discount, so it's dead cheap. Well, double wow. Yeah, before we know it, me and you, we're going to be diving on barrier reefs, relaxing by the pool, and getting married on a white sandy beach. Oh, that sounds amazing. Whoa, 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 what? Diving on barrier reefs? Relaxing by the pool? No, the other thing. Getting married on the beach? Yeah, that, obviously that. What, what are you talking about? Well, that's part of the package. What package? Well, the thing is, right, the holiday discount, it's the honeymoon package. So in order to qualify, we have to have a quick wedding whilst we're there. It'll be fun. I signed us up for the romantic beachfront wedding ceremony at sunset. But Ryan, the Maldives is pretty strictly Islamic faith nation, and we're two men. They're not going to let us get married. Ah, well, that's why I bought you this dress. A dress? Yeah, I figured you could just pretend to be a woman and we could show up for a quick romantic beachfront sunset wedding and then crack on with the holiday fun at discount prices. Ryan, this is ridiculous. Is it though? Absolutely, and I'm not doing it. Well, that's a shame, because I thought you'd enjoy it. Well, why on earth would you think I'd enjoy dressing up as a woman and marrying you? Well, because the honeymoon package comes with unlimited drinks included. Oh, does it? Well, in that case... I do, Ryan! I will marry you! Ah, you've made me the happiest man alive. Right, 
right. So look, should we uh, should we do some history? Are you going to start with the Big Bang, or are you going to fast forward a little bit? <laughs> I'm going to fast forward just a little bit from that, and we're going to start 60 million years ago. <laughs> of course, <laughs> 60 million years ago, there were some large volcanoes in the Indian Ocean. They went extinct, and as the ocean floor beneath them subsided, they start to sink. Gradually, coral begins to grow around them and a barrier reef is formed. Over time, material from that coral dies and falls off and it grinds down into a dust and collects into sandbanks. These sandbanks then become tiny islands and entire ecosystems of plants, birds, creepy crawlies all start to live on them. And so at that point, we start to get the Maldive Islands. At some point, early man arrives, but the ancient period of the Maldives is not greatly understood, thanks in part to three things. One, no history was written down until the 16th century, which is a bit of a problem (laughs) for me. Yes. Two, not much archaeology has been conducted until recently. And three, the islands keep disappearing and new ones emerging. Oh, that does seem like a problem. (laughs) Yeah. So anything that might have been buried on it has disappeared over time as new ones have popped up. But thanks to a combination of old legends, archaeology, and some modern research, we do have some indication as to who the earliest inhabitants might have actually been. So, according to legend, the first settlers were a people known as the Davis. Said to have arrived around 2,500 years ago, the Davis are said to have originated from northern India and were a group led not by a king, but by a religious leader called the Sawamia, who worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. Shortly after the Davis settle, a number of other smaller groups arrive from India and from Sri Lanka, some of whom build structures on the islands and carve giant phallus statues. It's just the ancient equivalent of drawing in your rough book, isn't it? Just only the medium changes. (laughs) (laughs) And so with all these different groups populating the various islands, it wasn't long before a kingdom is established to unite them all. And that kingdom was called Divamari and was ruled by King Aditya, a prince who had been exiled to the Maldives by his father, who was a king in India. That's an, an, an exile I could get down with, to be honest. You are exiled <laughs> to the Maldives. Oh, really? Okay, I guess I'll go. Oh, no. <laughs> but this establishes what is known then as the Aditya or the Solar Dynasty. Solar is in the sun. Time passes and there's not a whole lot much more information uh, from the legends. But as we enter the common era, legend becomes less important because the islands start to pop up in historical records from other people. So in the second century, Greco-Roman historian Claudius Ptolemy and Greek mathematician Pappus of Alexandria, they both wrote independently of each other about the existence of the Maldives, saying that it was 1,370 islands as dependencies of Ceylon, which is the old name for modern-day Sri Lanka. And in the 4th century, Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus mentions a delegation from the Divi nation visiting Rome bearing gifts for Emperor Julian. I want to know what they brought. Well, fridge magnets. (laughs) (laughs) We might have a clue later, so bear that that in mind. In the 5th century, a 60-year-old Chinese monk called Feshun travelled from China to India by foot and along the way visited several sites, including 
Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and possibly the Maldives, saying that on every side of Ceylon are small islands, perhaps amounting to 100 in number, all of which depend on the Great Island, most of them producing precious stones and pearls. Another historical Chinese document, written in the year 658, records that the king of the Maldives sent gifts to the Tang Dynasty emperor Kao Tsung, and in the 9th century, a Persian traveller called Suleiman visited the islands which he called Dibajet, and he said that the islands were all inhabited, governed by a queen, and do a brisk trade. Which matches with legend, because at the time Suleiman is said to have visited, the male line of the Solar dynasty had died off, and the nation was now under the leadership of the Lunar dynasty, formed under the leadership of a Queen Damarara. Like the sugar. <laughs> I like the way they've gone with a new dynasty. Let's go with the moon. Sun's been had. We're different, but we're still up there in the celestial sky. Yeah. Anyway, this all brings us up to the time period for this episode, the High Middle Ages, which is a period of European history, notable for being relatively stable and prosperous. We see a growing population across Europe, expanding networks of trade, significant advances in technology, agriculture, art. It's basically 250 years of powerful monarchies, the development of Gothic architecture, and knights in shining armour. We're talking the Norman conquest and the Battle of Hastings, Christian armies crusading their way into the Middle East, and Mongol invasions of Eastern Europe. But not much of this impacts the Maldives, of course. But by pure coincidence, it does also happen to be the notable period of history of the Maldives too. Because after Indian King Rajadada is expelled from the Northern Atolls in 1117, the kingdom reunifies and a new leader ascends the throne as the ruler of 14 atolls and 2,000 islands. And when his nephew takes over in 1127, we witness the start of a huge change for the Maldivian people. And that change comes in the form of one man from Morocco, a guy called Abu al-Barakat, or Yusuf Shams al-Din, depending on which legend you listen to, I guess. I was going to say, they don't sound at all similar. <laughs> so this <laughs> no. is definitely someone, but he may have been called John or Philippa. <laughs> this is the problem with legends, I guess, right? Yeah. Said to be a Muslim scholar, Al-Barakat arrives in the Maldives full of religious fervour, and he sets about building a mosque, and then successfully converts King Aditya and his royal court to the Islamic faith. Wow, must have been persuasive fellow. You know, a town without religion is a little like the mule with a spinning wheel. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> mule. The name's Al-Barakat, Ibn Abu Al-Barakat, and I come before you good people tonight with an idea. Probably the greatest... Oh, it's not for you. It's more of a Sri Lanka kind of idea. Now, just wait a minute. We're twice as smart as the people of Sri Lanka. Just tell us your idea and we'll adopt it. All right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my idea. I give you the Maldives Mosque. <gasps> I've sold mosques to Morocco, Mali, and Madagascar, and by gum, it put them on the map. Yes, sir, there is nothing on earth like a genuine Boda Fede single dome mosque. What did I say? Mosque! What's it called? Mosque. That's right, mosque. 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 
I hear those things are awfully pricey. Don't you want to praise God nicely? How many gods do you intend? Just one's enough, my Hindu friend. Is there a chance that God's not there? I'd never let you waste your prayer. Were you sent here by the devil? No good, sir. I'm on the level. Can't I just keep doing good deeds? Prayers Muhammad needs. I swear it's right for all you folk. Where don't we let you drink or smoke? What's it called? Once again. But we already worship God. Sorry, Mom, your God's a slob. Mask, 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 mask. Don't. Now, there is no historical evidence for Abu al-Barakat ever visiting the islands, but regardless, we do know that within 30 years of his supposed arrival, by 1153, the people of the islands now consider themselves Muslim. Wow, that's quite quite the spread. So mosques are built on many of the islands, and all signs of any previous religious beliefs are systematically wiped out. The reason for this is because Muslims believe in just one god, Allah. So the worship of any other gods or deities are considered a sin. And because they believe that God should never be portrayed in any image, it led the Maldivian Muslim converts on a path of destruction, removing and demolishing any other religious items. Side note, though, and on a more serious note, this vandalism continues up to today. On Tuesday, 7th of February 2012, a group of six Islamic extremists forced their way into the National Museum in in the Maldives and attacked the museum's collection of pre-Islamic sculptures, destroying and severely damaging nearly the entire collection of about 30 sculptures dating from the 6th to the 12th centuries. Oh my goodness. You could do so many good things with your religious belief, couldn't you? <laughs> and rather than smashing up old, old statues. Yeah. Shame. And as you move through to the next room, you are now entering the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, exhibition. Well, you will see in the centre of the room a large plinth. And upon that plinth you will see... nothing. Presented in thin air and made with no materials, this item is very much the centrepiece of the exhibition, which encourages the viewer to imagine a vision of the Prophet, peace be upon him, without having to literally see him. And now, if you turn to your right, you will find the eastern wall. This is decorated in eggshell white, with a picture rail and no pictures. To your left, you'll find a door framed with an exit sign, which indicates you have completed the tour. Thank you for visiting the Al-Qaeda Museum in Mali. We invite you to visit our gift shop, where you can purchase a souvenir bookmark, keyring, or hammer, with complimentary ticket to the Museum of Mali, where we encourage you to visit and have a smashing time. But anyway, the point is that right slap bang in the middle of the high Middle Ages, the Maldives adopts Islam as their national religion. In terms of the history of the islands after this, a couple of centuries pass and guess who arrives? The Portuguese. It's the Portuguese. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) They arrive in 1558 and they try to colonize the country and are somewhat successful, but only last about 15 years before they're kicked out in 1573. A hundred years later, in the 17th century, the Dutch try a slightly different approach, deciding to offer their protection services. 
Oh, for a totally fee. different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, having no choice but to kind of accept the offer, the Maldivians pay their taxes, but otherwise kind of carry on life as usual. Then, in 1796, the British beat the Dutch for the possession of Sri Lanka, and as a result, adopt the protectorate agreement that the Maldives had had with the Dutch. Now, unlike the Dutch, though, the British do step in and help to sort of develop the country's infrastructure. And by 1932, despite the country still being an Islamic sultanate, the first democratic constitution takes place. And in 1953, they become a republic. But that lasts literally a couple of months. And in 1965, the British protectorate ends and the Maldives gain their independence. A president is installed as head of state and government, which you would hope would stabilise things, but a series of coups follow, which creates a whole lot of turmoil for decades to come. In the late 20th century, the Maldives embraces the financial benefits of tourism and becomes a hotspot destination for people all over the world, with big-name hotel brands creating luxury resorts for honeymooning couples and those who just love to dive. I can always imagine the, the Department of Economic Affairs, they're sitting around going, oh, what have, what resources do we have? And they're looking at going, what have we got? And there's this beach and the sea's lapping at the shore. If only there was something people wanted. <laughs> We've got coconuts. Shut up, John. No one wants coconuts anymore. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, though, on the 26th of December 2004, a 14-foot-high tsunami hits the islands at 700 kilometres per hour and causes nationwide devastation. 83 people die and $470 million worth of damages are caused. The island recovers slowly over the next decade and a half and tourism starts to pick back up just in time for the islands to be hit by the double whammy of COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine, which impacts the number of Russian tourists who can visit the island, Russia being one of their major tourist groups. And that kind of brings us to today, where we find a country which is growing stronger economically year on year, and where poverty has been reduced to just a few people living out on the remotest of atolls. Politically, the current government, headed by President Ibrahim Mohamed Salah, is struggling basically to make good on his promises to confront corruption. There are a lot of issues being faced with the police, the courts and the government, corruption in each of those. And worse still, the Maldives continues to face the influence of extremist groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda, uh, with the deaths of activists, politicians, journalists and bloggers continuing to happen with no convictions being made. Hmm. And in terms of the future, as one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world, the Maldives are facing a tremendous challenge in the face of climate change, with rising sea levels threatening to submerge 80% of the country by 2050 and the entire country by 2100. That is the very definition of an existential threat, isn't it? Your entire landmass could be underwater in a lifetime. Absolutely. Well, hang in there, Maldives. We're rooting for you for what that's worth. Okay, so as we've discussed, Islam found its way to the islands in 1153. The people became Muslim, and ever since then, the primary religion in the Maldives is the Islamic faith. Specifically, the Muslims living in the Maldives today identify as Sunni Muslims, which is a branch of Islam which believes that the position of the caliph, the Muslim leader, should be elected and not come from direct lineage to the Prophet Muhammad. 
The practice of any faith other than Islam is prohibited on the islands, except, of course, for foreign tourists who are allowed to practice their own religious beliefs as long as it is in private. I, I find that surprising. I kind of, I don't know why, it just seems weirdly anachronistic to have a mandated religion. You just have this image in your head of such a relaxed place. To have such a strong faith attached to it is incongruent. Yeah, I had expectations of chill, which are not yeah. being maintained by your The more I learn at the moment, the more uh, rigid it seems. Well, that's the thing. There is a lot of chill, but there's also a lot of unchill. <laughs> and so when we look at the history of the Maldives, we are presented by a timeline then, which is split into two parts. First of all, you've got the pre-Islamic age, which covers everything up to the 12th century. And then there is the Islamic age, which starts around 1153 and continues to present day. Now, as you will be well aware, this is beyond useful for me, uh, because that means that the time period for this episode, 1000 to 1250, falls arguably during the largest cultural and religious event in the nation's history. I was thinking, jammy get. Yes. <laughs> when, I, when you told me, oh, and then the big religious change happened in the exact time I needed it. <laughs> yeah, the does later was kind this week. So there's a lot for us to talk about with regards to religion in the Maldives. But this also presents one of the greatest mysteries about the island too. Because whilst we know that the Islamic faith begins on the island around 1153, that leaves 150 years of our time period still unaccounted for. And that mystery is the focus for this episode. What was the religion of the Maldives prior to the introduction of Islam? Now, we've heard tales of settlers bringing Hinduism to the islands, of the Devis people worshipping sun and moon gods, but was that still the religion of the Maldives during the years 1000 to 1150? Well, I hope to answer that question with the help of some people who have observed and written down their experiences of the people of the Maldives and their customs over the past 1000 years. Perhaps they can shed some light on this shrouded period of time. And so, Peter, we begin our journey with the story of a man who wrote about the Maldives just three years before the Maldives converted to Islam. Well, that's handy. He's bound to know stuff. <laughs> Let's find out. Okay, so our first traveller is Abu Abdullah Muhammad Al-Idrisi, simply known as Al-Idrisi. That's better. <laughs> he was a geographer and a cartographer born in North Africa in the year 1100. Believed to be a descendant of the Islamic prophet Muhammad, he spent much of his life travelling. He went across North Africa, he went through Spain, he went through Turkey, he went through Portugal, Hungary, and he even ended up in York, or Jorvik as it was called then, in England, at a time when the Vikings were in control. Wow, he got about. That culture clash must have been like, must have been incredible. Anyway, during his travels, he created maps. In fact, over his life, he created 70 really detailed maps, including a global map, which he titled Tabula Rogeriana, after his patron, King Roger II of Sicily, <laughs> to whom he made a special version of the map inscribed on a massive two-metre-wide disc of solid silver. Wow. That's incredible. Two metre wide. Uh, well, firstly, I start with Hail Roger. That's something I could really get behind a 
King Roger. And I'm disappointed yeah. that we haven't had one in the UK. Uh, secondly, a massive two metre silver disc map. Yeah. I'd like one of those for my living room, please. I mean, my living room is not two metres wide, so I'd have to <laughs> fold it round, round a corner. <laughs> and to accompany the map, Aladrisi wrote a book, which he called... The Book of Roger. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Anyway, and in that book, he describes the places that he presents on his map. And one of those places was a series of islands called the Maldives. Side note, it is unclear whether Aladrisi actually visited the Maldives, so I do have to declare that now, because he was known to include the descriptions of places visited by other travellers. So basically he would sit down and be like, so what's it like in the Maldives? And they'd be like, oh, it's nice, it's this, that, and the other, and he'd just be like scribbling that down in the book of Roger. (laughs) Just draw that in here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Either way, the writings present a vivid depiction of the islands in the year that we're looking at, 1150. And so, according to Aladrisi, the islands then were ruled by a king, but it was the queen who was the arbiter among the people. So she collected a load of taxes, which she then distributed as an act of charity to the poorest and the most in need. And Aladrisi says that she was so loved by her subjects that during public appearances, the people would come out and hang silk cloths along her route to walk along. Nice. She was the queen of hearts. (laughs) She was the queen of hearts. He also mentions that the Maldivians cultivated coconuts to trade and they collected cowrie shells as a means of exchange with foreigners. I'm thinking of a seashell being sold on a seashore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was pretty much what happened with them because they're light, they're distinctive and they're impossible to forge. And uh, the Maldives is one of the few places in the world where cowrie shells can be found in vast numbers. And so important were these shells to the Maldivians that Aladrisi says that most of the king's treasure was comprised of shells. Where did he keep it? On the beach? (laughs) (laughs) That's my bank. (laughs) Uh, Cowries are actually shown on the Maldivian coins today. They're Ah. they're still shown on the coin, like they're inscribed on the back. Anyway, uh, he also goes on to describe the craftsmen who live there, saying that they were skillful, that they built boats from very small pieces of wood, and that they built excellent buildings made of hard stone. He even describes wooden houses that they built, which were made to float on water. And what he's actually describing here has uh, held up because they still exist to this day. They're called moodhuge, or sea houses, and they are floating huts that are used as storage for coconuts, and they're floating out at sea to prevent rodents from getting inside. Oh, genius. Yeah, pretty cool, right? So when you're buying something in the Maldives, you are literally shelling out. (laughs) I thank you. You should be be ashamed. (laughs) Moving on. But, unfortunately for us, Pete, despite all of his detailed descriptions, Aladrisi neglects to mention any religious faith on the island at all. Ah, curse you, Aladrisi! And so, we have to move forward a couple hundred years now to the arrival of another man, another Islamic man, and one of the greatest travellers of all time. Ooh. So, born in Tangier in Morocco in 1304, meet Ibn Battuta. Oh, we've met Ibn Battuta. We have indeed, yeah. He's a fine fellow. 
Yeah, I can't remember what episode it was, but no doubt he's going to appear in many of our episodes because he did a whole lot of traveling. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In fact, by the end of his life, he had covered an astonishing 75,000 miles. It's quite a carbon footprint. (laughs) (laughs) It is, yeah. Anyway, so his adventure begins at the age of 21 uh, when he sets out on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, after completing that pilgrimage, he decides he doesn't want to go back. He wants to continue on and visit other cities of Islamic faith, places like Cairo and Damascus and Baghdad. And in the 1340s, Sultan Mohammed, the ruler of India at the time, he hires Batuta as his envoy on a mission to deliver some gifts to the Chinese emperor. Ibn Battuta accepts the mission, but unfortunately, the mission gets off to a bit of a poor start when Battuta is shipwrecked off the coast of southwestern India and all of the Sultan's gifts are lost. Oh, no. So fearing the king's wrath, Batuta skedaddles out of India pretty quick smart (laughs) and he travels south until he finds himself a perfect hideaway place, the Maldives. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's not wrong. (laughs) He's not wrong. In fact, he describes it as lush with vegetation and with lagoons filled with clear waters. Nice. Now, welcomed by the Sultan, because remember, Ibn Battuta is a very religious Islamic man. Battuta is impressed by the hospitality he receives. He gets a lot of generosity from the local people. Ultimately, he decides he's going to stay there for two years. During his time there, he learns a great deal about the people, their customs, their trade and their daily life. He notes that the local economy at this time is based primarily on fishing and the production of kawer, a type of fibre made from coconut husks, which the islanders then trade with countries as far as India and indeed China. Unsurprisingly, as a Muslim himself, Batuta is impressed that the Maldivians were strict followers of the Islamic faith, noting that they took daily prayers and that they fasted during Ramadan. He wrote about the importance of the mosque in their society, describing it as the centre of religious and communal life. He even offered his services as a religious judge to help advise and enforce religious practice across the islands. He said that he witnessed several rituals and celebrations, such as Eid, and he marvelled at the preparations and feasting that took place for these events. So bear in mind, this is about 150 years after the initial conversion. So it's taken some time to bed in. It's got going. It's established now, I think, 150 years. You'd think so. So he says that during these events, uh, the atmosphere is festive with joy and happiness palpable in the air. He talks about Maldivian women, uh, noting that they were handsome and well-shaped. Well shaped. <laughs> it's not a compliment that's given often enough these days. <laughs> You're well shaped, my lady. <laughs> he says that they're always seen dressed in their finest clothing and observing a strict dress code where their bodies were entirely covered in fabric and their faces covered with a veil. He said that the women were active and engaged members of their communities, providing music and dance for local celebrations, as well as tattooing hands and feet of newlyweds. I guess whether they wanted it or not. (laughs) Pin them down. (laughs) In fact, talking of weddings, Batuta was so taken with the beauty and elegance of the Maldivian women that he actually got married to several of them. Oh, yes. Including the daughter of the ruling family. The guy likes a wedding, what can you say? (laughs) Batuta doesn't make any specific reference to other religious beliefs on the islands prior to Islam, unfortunately. However, 
he does mention one thing, and that that is that there were special tombs on some of the islands which were considered by the Maldivians to be places of spiritual power and reverence. Ah. And this didn't quite fit in with the Islamic faith. Sadly, he doesn't elaborate any further on that. He got fearful that the Indian king was still looking for him and looking for revenge, so he set out on his mission and resumed his way to China. He married everyone. Was there anyone left at the end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it wasn't unusual for Batista. Apparently, he married many times on his journeys. Uh, he had many children all across the world. Nice. Perhaps you're related to Ibn Battuta, Pete. I might have a bit of Battuta in me. <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you, the prophet, praise be upon him, wasn't buried in Mecca. Yes, he was. No, he was buried in Medina. It was Mecca. Medina. Mecca. Medina. Gentlemen, gentlemen, what seems to be the problem here? Ibn Battuta, religious tutor. That's right. Now, why are you two arguing? Well, he says that the prophet, praise be upon him, was buried in Mecca. And I say it was Medina. It is in Mecca. It's Medina. Now, now, my friends, no need to argue, for the correct answer is Medina. You see? Yes, the prophet, praise be upon him, was buried in Medina because he said the prophets should be buried wherever they die. And the prophet Muhammad, praise be upon him, died in Medina. Okay, I realise now I was wrong. Thank you, Ibn Battuta, religious tutor. My pleasure. Now, don't forget your daily prayers. We won't. Okay, so on to our next trip into the time machine, Pete. We're heading to the late 16th century. Yeah, because right now, Ryan, you've not uncovered much in the way of pre-Islamic religion, so I'm hoping you've got more. So in the late 16th century, we're going to meet Francois Pierrot de Flavelle. Can you guess where he's from? <laughs> <laughs> well, from the way you said it, Newcastle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Pete, he was a Frenchman. <sighs> he had a passion for maps and navigation. He begins his life at sea as a sailor, and he goes out on several trading ships and by 1601 his skills with a compass and a sextant were so impressive that he is headhunted for an important job of navigator on a trading mission to South Asia. So boarding the good ship Corbin he set out on a voyage accompanied by another ship the Croissant. (laughs) (laughs) Arriving in the Maldives on the first day of July 1602 the two boats find themselves in shallow waters surrounded by small islands and reefs. Pirard's crew on board the Corbin advised those on the croissant <laughs> that, they should, <laughs> that they should avoid the area, but their complaints fall on deaf ears and they are told to press on, sailing directly into a ring-shaped reef known as Namuli Faru, Maldivian for Shipwreck Reef. <laughs> oh, well, you can't say you weren't warned, croissant. <laughs> and so the Corbin and the croissant sail on. <laughs> <laughs> They sail on until nightfall when the ship is struck heavily twice. And on the third time it is struck, the ship heels over onto its side and is half submerged. Now, everyone on board is now stranded on this half submerged wreck in the middle of the ocean. And they are immediately anticipating certain death. But for two days, Pirard and his crew managed to cobble together a small ship from the wreckage of the Corbin. And they half swim it half sail it to the nearest shore (laughs) 
Now there, they are met by native Maldivians who are deeply suspicious of them. So taken captive, Pirard and his men are held for several days before finally being brought in front of the Sultan. Now Pirard and his crew try to explain their situation and request some assistance, but the Sultan is too wary of their motives and he tells them, you know what, you're just not welcome here. So Pirard and his men await the Sultan's final decision on what he's going to do with them. But while they're waiting, they establish a small small trading post, basically a grocery store on the island. Because <laughs> <laughs> why not, right? So open a shop while we're here, why not? You've got to do something, haven't <laughs> yeah. you? And through that, they become familiar with the local residents. Parad uses this opportunity to not only chronicle his adventures so far, but also to observe the people and their culture. He notes the Islamic practices, but unlike Batuta, Parad records a much more revealing observation about the people. According to the people he was witness to, religion on the island was not so straightforwardly Islamic. He talks about superstitions, he talks about demon worship, and a spirituality of a type similar to Hinduism, which believes that objects, places, and creatures all possess a spiritual essence. He mentions that the islander's principal festival isn't Eid, but a traditional event called Poikakon, which took place on the full moon of April and was a celebration to remember the first introduction of rice to the islands. Now, needless to say, this is all very much at odds with the Islamic doctrine. (laughs) (laughs) Going further, Pirard notes two languages in use in the Maldives. He says that there is a version of Arabic, a bit like Latin is used in Christian faith, but then there is an old and complex Maldivian language used in daily life. He even wrote down much of the old Maldivian language, trying his best to sort of decipher this vast lexicon, but is ultimately thwarted when the Sultan decides that he's had enough of Pirard's crew and he arrests them and he imprisoned them on charges of espionage and plotting against the state. So now Pirard and his crew are in jail and they are facing the harshest conditions he's ever faced. He describes a dark and cramped cell surrounded by scorpions, snakes and other dangerous creatures. He says he was subjected to various forms of torture too, including beatings and starvation. And eventually, fearing for his life, Pirard pleads with a local man to help him escape. Doing so, he's able to flee the country, sailing to Sri Lanka, where eventually he returns home to write an account of his adventure. An account which some notable scholars and historians have warned, in quotes, may have been exaggerated or embellished for dramatic effect. Well, who's going to know? I'd do it. I would absolutely (laughs) embellish the heck out of my story. (laughs) (laughs) There were scorpions and snakes and other dangerous (laughs) creatures. (laughs) (laughs) And so, your majesty, in summary, trade in coconuts is up, choir production is down, refurbishments to the mosque are on track, and preparations for Eid are underway. So, all looking pretty good, all in all. Excellent. Good work. Now, before you leave, how are those French lads getting on? You know, the the shipwrecked fellas. Ah, you mean Monsieur Pirard and the crew of the Corbin? Yeah, those guys. 
Well, it appears that the Frenchmen have opened a successful food stall in the Harbour District. I see. Well, that's very industrious. Indeed, sir. Well, what are they selling in this little store of theirs? Hot baguettes? Snail sandwiches? Frog leg pie? No, sir. Uh, their access to ingredients has been limited. As such, they are restricted to selling foods made with the most simple of ingredients. Flour, eggs and milk. So they're selling round, thin cakes made in a pan. Oh, these pan cakes are popular, are they? Absolutely, sir. They've been selling an absolute crepe load. Well, what a bunch of tossers. Okay, so, with Pirard's discoveries ringing in our ears, we shuffle forward another couple hundred years to 1829, where the East India Company are having a bit of a problem getting goods out of the Mediterranean and down to India. The Suez Canal hasn't been opened yet, so at this moment in time they're having to move cargo over land on a route through Egypt to the Red Sea, where new steam-powered ships are then tasked with navigating hazardous waters towards India. So, the East India Company commissions a young lieutenant called Robert Moresby to set out on a four-year mission to chart the Red Sea. They tell him to look out for any reefs, any shipwrecks, anything basically that could cause damage to their new, lovely, shiny new steam-powered ships. Now, four years later, returning in 1833, he has a whole bunch of detailed charts, and the East India Company are delighted. They laud him for success, they make him a captain, and they immediately send him off to do the same thing in the Indian Ocean. Ah. And so, in 1834, Moresby, assisted by Lieutenants Christopher and Young, set off to undertake the difficult cartography of the region, including the Maldives. So, after four years of hard work, they have successfully mapped the first accurate maritime view of the entire atoll group. Now, Moresby wants to continue on and chart the waters around the Seychelles, but Lieutenant Christopher and Young, they've had enough, and they are granted permission to remain on the islands, in quotes, to study the native population. Yes, that's a study that I'm willing to undertake for the good of the nation. <laughs> I, I hear they're well-shaped. The <laughs> I've heard that, but we haven't confirmed it, Ryan. <laughs> Now, during their residence, the men grow closely acquainted with the Maldivians, and they learn a lot about the culture and the language. In particular, they pick up where Pirard left off, and they write down the ancient Maldivian alphabet and a lexicon of a thousand words, which they later publish as an article in 1841 under the title Vocabulary of the Maldivian Language. Does what it says on the tin. So in the article, Christopher writes that the construction of the language is akin to that of the East Indian languages, stating that there is no possibility of a doubt as to their derivation from southeastern people. Now, later in life, Christopher writes a memoir which expands on these origins, saying that he had been informed by local people there that while the Maldivian religion had been Islamic since the 1200s, there were in fact two two temples on remote islands that were more ancient and based on another religion. The locals describe this ancient religion as having had the custom of burying their dead with their body laid on the right-hand side, with their left hand of the corpse placed on the left thigh and their right hand under the right ear, a posture that was reminiscent of statues of a resting Buddha. 
Ah. Now, this small but important piece of information got Christopher and Young looking for other signs of Buddhism across the islands. And they soon noticed that many of the mosques that had been built across the country had a Bodhi tree on the grounds. Now, a Bodhi tree is important because it's held in veneration by Buddhists as a central symbol of the religion, because it represents the original Bodhi tree under which it said that the Buddha attained enlightenment. So, thanks to Christopher and Young, this is the first time we have some solid evidence for a religion in the Maldives prior to the Islamic age. We're getting somewhere. I feel the mystery is expanding, unravelling, covering, unfolding, unfurling. It's doing something. (laughs) Okay, and this all brings us to Harry Charles Purvis Bell or HCP Bell, as he was more commonly known. Oh, yeah, HCP, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was an officer in the Ceylon Civil Service, who in 1880 was tasked with investigating the shipwreck of the SS Seagull, a 1,000-ton British merchant ship which had been wrecked on the reefs of the Maldives, resulting in the total loss of all 35 people aboard. Now, arriving in the Maldives, Bell sets about writing a report on the shipwreck, but also uses his time in the island to follow up on Pirard and Christopher and Young's observations about the people and the culture. In a provisional report, which was written in 1881, he said this, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit because he was very wordy. (laughs) (laughs) Whilst the evidence so far available is both quite insufficient and of a nature too vague to warrant definite conclusion, it is far from improbable that a close scrutiny of names of islands and non-Muslim customs and festivals will make it abundantly clear that Buddhist missionaries in the 3rd century BC departed to intermingle among all unbelievers, carrying their doctrine across the sea, even to the little-known Maldives. Nice. I like the way he starts with, it's not inconceivable that we don't doubt perhaps we might... <laughs> like, yeah. Just say it. Just spit it out, man. <laughs> that's the paraphrased spoke. version. <laughs> they had so much time on their hands. Welcome, Mr. Bell. I understand you have a publication you'd like to propose to us about your finds from the Maldives. Ah, indeed. I desire greatly to unburden my mental capacities of the fascinating findings unearthed during my perambulations across the archipelago known to you and I as that most magnificent of island chains, none other than the geographic gem popularly known amongst the masses as the Maldives. Right, right, yes. So uh, if you'd like to just tell us what you did. Of course. I availed myself, as one would as a matter of course, of an implement, bladed and hefted for the transition of soil from its resting place upon the breast of Gaia herself to a parallel location, heaped upon heap until it rose high, high, nigh unto the heavens above. So you... you dug a hole. Indeed, I brought forth from previously unexamined ignorance the unimpeachable, unignorable truth that ages past, both recent and from ancient times, indeed from the time of Herodotus himself, were considered gone from human understanding, from academic ken. Right, right, that is to say you found a statue, and do you think this would make a good book, possibly even a bestseller, do you? I do. 
Even now, within the forefront of my mind's eye, I see quite vividly an image of a bookshop proudly front and centre displaying as an artefact of great value to man and woman alike, young and old, my magnum opus, my epic adventure, my saga of discovery. Well, that's all very good, Mr. Bell, but uh, just just one thing. You, you do realise that we no longer pay by the word. Oh. Well, then, can I interest you in my pamphlet? Buddha down a hole? And that brings us to John Stanley Gardner, 1899. So eight years after Bell's report is published, an Irishman arrives in the capital of Mali. And this man is John Stanley Gardner. He's a zoologist who spends his life exploring and researching coral reefs. He studied corals in Rotuma and Fiji and the Pacific island of Funafuti. And he's now in the Maldives to study the reefs there. He begins his analysis in the northernmost atolls, and he stays for five weeks on the island of Haluli, spending much of his day in waist-high water, mostly observing sea slugs. (laughs) Oh, the glamour of zoology. Wrinkly toes and a sea slug. (laughs) I'm not going to invite him to my next dinner party, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) But it was while staying on the remote islands in the northern atoll that Gardner discovered something other than just sea slugs. Because when he returned home in 1900, he published his findings about slugs in a 1,000 page... Slugs I have no. (laughs) (laughs) 1,000 pages of slugs I have known. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a thousand page article, which among the dietary habits of sponges and slugs included tantalizing information about the presence of ancient ruins across several of the Maldives islands. Which brings us back to H.C.P. Bell, because Gardner's discovery reaches H.C.P. Bell and he just becomes a man obsessed. So he believes that a return trip to the Maldives to conduct an archaeological survey is now essential to reveal places of Buddhist worship that have been ruined on the Maldives. But this is his Lara Croft moment, isn't it? Exactly. Tomb Raider, right? Now, sadly, that return would need to wait 20 years years oh man because the next time bell is back in the maldives it's 1922 and he wastes no time right he makes two archaeological expeditions to the southern atolls in that one year and he explores four islands now to his delight he discovers the remains of various buddhist buildings he discovers a dome-shaped shrine called a dagobah containing relics of the buddha he finds a buddhist monastery and importantly he even finds one example of of a vatadaj, a type of Buddhist structure found only in Sri Lanka. But despite these small but tantalising discoveries, H.C.P. Bell was convinced he had found the answer to what religion thrived in the Maldives prior to the Islamic age, saying, despite all disabilities, such remains, albeit comparatively few, suffice, by surprisingly good fortune, absolutely to establish past shadow of a doubt the irrefutable former existence of pronounced Buddhism at the Maldives. Now, unfortunately for Bell, time ran out again for his expedition and he was left to return home with a raft of notes which he used in his retirement to write a book on the subject, which he called The Maldive Islands, Monograph on the History, Archaeology and Epigraphy, The Study and Interpretation of Ancient Inscriptions. 
Ah. Anyway, he completed his book just before his death, but sadly he never got to see it published because it wasn't sent to press until three years after his death. Oh no. Today, however, Bell's discovery is regarded as the father of archaeology on the islands, and it has inspired a host of further explorations, including a Maldivian archaeology team who, in July 1958, excavated a site in Thodu Island where they found the figure of the Buddha and a relic casket, but also a Roman coin which dated to 90 BCE. Wow. Which predates them visiting Rome by like 200 years. That's amazing. Yeah. And then in later years, several Buddhist artifacts are found, including images, caskets and shrines, which are found in Mali. And yet, despite all of the evidence that was pointing to Buddhism being present on the islands prior to the Islamic conversion, it wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that a real concerted effort was made to explore this period of the island's history. And it started with a Norwegian called Thor Heyerdahl. One autumn day in 1982, Thor receives an envelope in the post, which contains an image of a stone statue from the Maldives. Now, he becomes intrigued by this image, and he wants to understand who the people were that made that statue. So, he makes an expedition to the Maldives his priority. And over two archaeological expeditions in 1983 and 1984, he found large stone mounds in the centre of almost every island he visited. Each of the mounds contained small temples made of carved blocks of coral stone, which, thanks to radiocarbon datings, were found to have been built as early as 500 CE. He found stone statues representing Buddha and small stone wading pools near each of the temples with ceremonial stairs leading down into them. And by the end of his investigation, Heyerdahl was convinced that sun worshippers from the ancient Indus Valley had arrived in the Maldives via India and Sri Lanka by at least the 1st century BCE. But despite literal mounds of evidence, <laughs> this theory was not generally accepted. And so a decade later, in 1996, Heyerdahl's friend, Eric Mickelson, returns to the Maldives to conduct further research. And this time it's in cooperation with the National Centre for Linguistics and Historical Research in Mali. So Mickelson's excavations reveal further evidence of an early Buddhist culture in the Maldives, sufficient for him to conclude that by the year 300, Buddhism had been well established. But of more relevance to us, Pete, is the bones he excavated from four grave sites on the site of a Buddhist monastery were carbon dated to various dates between the late 9th to the 12th century, exactly during our time period. Oh. Meaning that after a 700 year old mystery, we finally have proof that Buddhism was the religion in the Maldives prior to the introduction of Islam. It was Buddhists what done it. it wow. Was. That was great. What a mystery. Mystery solved. It was the Buddhists all along. It was. Those <laughs> tricks and Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was quite the mystery. I, I must admit, when you said you were doing religion, I didn't think we'd be having a kind of a religious mystery unravelling to happen. That was great. It was an extraordinary journey trying to sort of just read up about all these people. Well, I must say, Ryan, I thought that was a terrific tour of religious mysteries. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I was thinking it was going to be, you were going to have to weave together some nonsense about coconuts and being religious, <laughs> but you served it beautifully up. But enough of the Maldives. We must return to our basement where the Dursalator awaits. Wheeler out, Ryan. Oh, here we go. 
Okay, and so, Peter, your place is... North Korea. North Korea. North the, the Korea. North Korea. That freedom of information loving nation. <laughs> All right, you're going to need a time period. Okay, well, and your time period is... Just the other day. Just the other day. Yeah. Okay, well, that's modern. <laughs> I guess. But I'm not sure how much new information we get from North Korea. And so, your topic is... Oh, I love this. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> a pig in a poke. A pig in a poke. <laughs> okay, well, I know what that means, at least. So that's... Let, me, let me just review this for you. <laughs> Your next episode is A Pig in a Poke in North Korea just the other day. I think it'll be fine. Everyone knows that North Korea is happy to lavish you with information whenever you ask. <laughs> I genuinely don't know what that's going to be about. So I'm thrilled. I'm super excited. I'll find something. Okay, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com, or email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We do love hearing from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Now, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or Mastodon, you can find us at hhepodcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content, like facts we didn't use, photos from the show, and other miscellaneous bits and bobs we will of course be back again soon with the verdict but until then a huge thanks to you ryan and thank you to you peter and that's it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. Do you know what? I've, I've had a brilliant holiday. I know, right? Two weeks in the Maldives. Incredible. I can't believe we got away with the wedding as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. You were a beautiful bride. <laughs> oh, what a discount we got. I know, yes. But, but look, it's probably time we got this divorce done, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a good job the Maldives is so well practiced in serving quick divorces. Yeah, I've got to hand it to you, Ryan. You really thought this one through. Good work. Thanks, Pete. Oh, here comes the officiator. Mr. and Mrs. Weir? Yes? Yes? I understand you wanted to get a divorce? That's right. That's right. Well, in line with Islamic tradition, all we ask is that the husband state out loud, I divorce you three times, and there you go. That's that. Fantastic! Then a £2,000 payment for the administration fee and we're all done. But that's more than the discount on the holiday, Ryan. A lot more. Oh, right. Well, Mr. Weir, if you'd like to get started in your own time... Well, it's just like you say, that is an awful lot of money. Ryan! Ryan! Looks like someone changed their mind. Maybe you should give him a chance, Mrs. Weir? Oh, well, definitely give him something. By the way, just out of interest, what is the penalty for murder in the Maldives? Oh, should we turn off the recording device? Let us turn off the recording device.